Welcome to Biotalk. My name is Jeff Meyerson, CEO and co-founder of Locust Walk, and you're listening to Biotalk, our podcast for biotech dealmakers. Today I get to sit down with Eric Anderson, co-founder and CEO of Alloy Therapeutics. Alloy is a collaborative drug discovery company that delivers platforms and services helping other companies discover cutting-edge biologics. From academics and biotechs of every size to large pharma, Alloy democratizes access to foundational, pre-competitive biologics, discovery technologies, and services to enable drug discovery across six biologic modalities. In addition to Alloy, Eric serves as CEO of his single-family office, Ulysses Diversified Holdings. Eric started his career in venture capital at Lehman Brothers Venture Capital and worked at Bristol-Myers Squibb in marketing. He has been the chairman of the Board of Governors at Major League Rugby and is the principal owner of national champion New England Free Jacks professional rugby team. He received his AB in economics from Dartmouth, MBA from the Tuck School of Business, and studied bioengineering as a graduate student at Thayer School of Engineering. Welcome to Biotalk, Eric. Great to have you here today. You're so nice with that introduction, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. Great to chat. I did have a little help from you, but... Uh, I do. Uh, it's an interesting background. We're going to get to cover some of that. So why don't we just jump right in? So maybe if you can provide uh, the audience with some background as to what led you to explore early stage biotech. Uh, early stage biotech. So my career started, I'm an economist by background. I studied econometrics undergrad, and that led me into banking and venture capital. So I snuck my way into venture capital during the late 90s, early 2000s. I kind of like, you know, telecom deregulation, first internet boom, got a little taste of everything at Lehman Brothers Venture Capital, worked with a really great team there. Um, it was not just a corporate venture fund. We actually, two thirds of our capital came from third parties. And that was actually part of the strategy that uh, Mike Odrich, Michael Castleman, uh, Tom Banahan, Brian Paul, they had all set up there. It was a really wonderful experience for a child which is what I was at the time, just kind of like learning my way about investing. Through that, um, I saw a whole bunch of different venture-backed companies, tech and biotech. Um, we were mainly tech-focused uh, at the time. And, and that really led to my interest in sort of moving beyond venture capital, past venture capital. I love venture capital as a career, um, but I really felt like my interest lied more in building companies and building technologies, more of with the management teams, with the founders. Um, and that's what I was geeking out on and super interested in. So I made a decision relatively early on in my career that I would prefer to be on the other side of the fence working with venture capitalists, so creating uh, companies. And so I decided I'd go back to grad school, I'd become a bioengineer and work on starting a biotech company. And you've started multiple, I think, Adamab, Elector, Compass, Arsanus, uh, Avatide, and a few other things like the New England Free Jacks. So before we get into <laughs> uh, the biotech side, I mean, just just spend a minute explaining that story to the to everyone. I think it's pretty interesting. With the, with the Free Jacks, so our single family office, Ulysses Diversified Holdings, and I sound like a jerk when I say that. So we did. I didn't grow up with any money. I grew up in a farm in Western Kansas, and so everything I have uh, that my wife and I have really comes from this, you know, the luck, a bit of hard work and sort of building and investing in companies, including biotech companies. Um, so our single family office has a dual strategy of healthcare and entertainment. Healthcare, um, because I think for obvious reasons, especially with uh, our skill set and whatnot, but entertainment we define as anything in the world that's more than what you need to survive. And so that's really for our family and for the family office, it's about having a conversation to say, look, we're really lucky to have a nice house. I've got a car that's a bit more than transportation. It's like kind of a nice car. I drive an Audi. Um, but it's the uh, 
it's the idea that be thoughtful about the choices you make and appreciate what you have. And so in our family office, healthcare and entertainment. And so on our entertainment side, we support on, we support entrepreneurially minded people building for-profit businesses that make the world a better place. So Ulysses, these are for-profit. They have to make the world a better place. So in entertainment, that actually narrows down the field pretty quickly. And so we ended up um, being involved with Major League Rugby at the founding of the league. We are not one of the founders, but we saw everything coming together and helped out. And my business partner, the Free Jacks, uh, Alex Magaldi, he's really the brains of the operation. Uh, and we've known each other for many years. We played uh, rugby at Dartmouth together. His wife was actually employee number one at two of our biotech companies. So Brooke is like the brains of that operation. Um, she's also a doctor and like super smart. Um, so yeah, we, Mags and I were together and and he said, hey, this league's coming together. We'd followed it closely and it fit in with the, the, the principle of our family office, which is we're really looking to build community. And so the Free Jacks we created as a brand is about humble, hardworking folks with high integrity that happen to, to play some rugby. Um, but really it's about creating an organization that's present in our community and connects with our local community in Boston and New England. Uh, but it's also a wonderful bridge to some of the work we do internationally um, in Africa and Europe and Asia, because uh, you can kind of travel anywhere in the world and talk about rugby and, and talk to other rugby folks and work with those teams. Um, so you can be talking about rugby, but you're really having a conversation about the other things you're trying to accomplish together um, as a community. Yeah, and uh, I think it's interesting that somehow, some way, Alloy Therapeutics became a sponsor of the Free Jacks. So I have no I, idea how that happened through the marketing department. I mean, I have no control. You have connections, I guess, right, yes. to help out with that. But yeah. um, You know, we were really proud to say, like, if there was an opportunity, I did have a conversation with the Alloy team. And, you know, who knows if you, you tell the, the boss no to something like that. Um, but actually, there's a slide we have at Alloy around integrity. So integrity is about doing what you say you're going to do. It's actually an identical slide they have at the Free Jacks. Because literally it's like, what does it take to be a Free Jack? It's like literally the identical language at both companies because they tr they truly are built around similar principles as a company. It's how do you show up and be the one that does the work? Um, you know, the Free Jacks are the folks that turn out the lights at the end of the game. Like who's the, who's the team and the person you can rely on to do the work that no one else wants to do? Alloy has the same business model. That's That's the core of what we do. So... When I talk to the team about, hey, is it embarrassing? Is it bad? Like, I, you know, I'd be excited about this. It's awesome to see the, the Alloy logo all over the world on jerseys and on Fox and like national television. It's kind of crazy. Does it sell more antibody discovery services, more TCR? Unclear. I don't know. Unclear. unclear. It's unclear. unclear yes. um, man, the Free Jacks winning the national championship and all of the... Uh, all of the press that they get, we certainly, the, the number of ad impressions the marketing team says that we have is off the charts. So there are, there are children in South Africa that really want some services from Alloy right now. And I just, we just got to figure out a way to get it to them, I guess. I think that's your next growth of uh, for expansion. It's funny. We, we did our, our SPAC a few years ago. We had a quick segment on CNBC and we saw something about, we had a quarter of a million impressions and somehow I don't think that translated to extra revenue for local. <laughs> Who knows? Well, Locust Walk's logo would look great on the back of the Free Jacks jersey, or if you want, I'll move to the back if you want to be on the front. Case, I'd love to consider it, but that's uh, great. So before diving into Alloy, and I, I think it's obviously the the major source of your success was was Adamab, and, and probably a lot of the inspiration for what you're doing at Alloy. Can you maybe give just briefly the backstory, high level from Adamab, and how that led to Alloy, and then kind of morph that into what you do at Alloy and, and what's unique about it. Yeah, it does feel like it's, you know, I've been working on the same business plan for 20 years. Sometimes it feels that way. Clearly, it was not a straight line always. Um, but at the core of the Adamab business plan, 
Um, right. So I had wonderful co-founders there. It was this idea, this observation um, that we had in, in from multiple different angles of most venture-backed biotech companies, they have platforms and they have products and it's the same company because venture capital, as venture capitalists, I also make venture capital investments. Um, we, we do venture capital at Alloy as well. So as a venture capitalist, you're funding companies that have to have billion dollar potential, just the nature of the cost of capital and what we do. And we need to fund things that we can later sell as venture capitalists. And so what tends to happen in biotech is that we fund things, uh, sorry, in venture capital, we fund things in biotech that are patentable. But most of the science and many of the things that we do actually in biotech are unpatentable. They're methods, there's what a scientist knows. And so the ability to discover drugs is really, it's a whole bunch of things that are not just patents and not just composition of matter of the drugs. But, but biotech venture funds really composition of matter of drugs is drug pipelines. And so part of the thought experiment of Atomab was, what if you could separate the creation of drugs from the drug companies themselves? Is that venture fundable? The answer generally is no, or it's really hard um, to pull that off. And so where Atomab did a really great job is kind of creating this proprietary synthetic human immune system in yeast, wrapping it in a service so anyone could get access to it and making that available to the world. And there's a lot of questions from the venture capitalists and otherwise whether that was a good business model. And I will say the Atomab team worked like maniacs to make it work. And so we were we were funded in 2007, right before the global financial collapse. And so we grew and built that company at a time when everyone was being kind of lean and readjusting their priorities. Um, and I will say we were we were the lowest paid management team. If you look at like the Radford Global Life Sciences Survey for every one of those years, like. You know what I got paid? Because if you look at COO, I was always the minimum. And if you look at Tillman as a CEO, it's like he was always the minimum, right? Dane as the CSO was always the minimum. So, um, and that was true for the rest of the management team. Um, Mike Feldhaus, Piotr Bobrovich, Max Vasquez, and, the, and the, the core team that was there. Eric Crowlin joined early on. He's now risen to the CSO and the president at this point. So the team has stuck together pretty well over all the years, built this phenomenal, fully integrated drug discovery platform that would never have its own drug pipeline. So in the alloy model today, the extension of that, one of the other things we did is we created the first customers of the Atomat platform. So part of the pitch or the insight coming from the venture background, coming from our very shared experiences was if venture, uh, as you wait for the world to realize you have a really great platform, why not help your venture capitalists create the customers of that platform? So Arsanis was actually incorporated as Atomat's first customer. And so the financing that went into Arsanis that later became a matter of public record, but I don't say the numbers here. So the money that came into Arsanis, a portion of that actually became revenue to Atomab. And so Arsanis equity was sold, turned into Atomab revenue and cash, developed the Atomab platform. Atomab did a really great job of discovering those, those pretty cutting edge antibodies for Arsanis. And so we ended up sort of that raised the valuation of Atomab and proved that the business model was working and the investors were happy because they got to own a whole bunch of Arsanis, the drug company, which eventually went public. And so we did that four times. There were four companies that were started that were customers of Atomab. Um, Elector was a partner with Atomab, uh, a company called Creagene that we started and then put down uh, and then Compass Therapeutics as well. Those were all customers of Atomab. And so that business model works. So take the alloy business model, again, kind of pushing on to this, to this pattern of how do you create cutting edge technologies, wrapper them in service and make them broadly available to the world. Um, Alloy is set up to be a forever company and how we talk about it, meaning there is a controlling class of stock at Alloy uh, that is held in a trust in our family office that cannot be bought. 
right? So Alloy, as long as it doesn't run out of money, it'll just keep going along. And Alloy's interest is not to be the biggest company in the world, but it's to be a really good drug discovery partner uh, to our um, to to the other big companies and venture back companies that we work with. Some of those venture back companies actually start inside our venture studios, so platform services venture studios. So whereas in a previous iteration at Atomab, Arsanis was an independent company funded by venture capitalists. In the integrated model of platform services venture studios it's a little bit more efficient to be creating companies that have and the venture studio uh, that while they operate independently and the venture studio operates independently uh, we call our venture studio 82 vs uh, it actually has unfettered and unlimited access to in principle to the platforms and services so as you're creating cutting-edge platforms the people who are creating those platforms, the people with ideas around what's the best drug to go after, they can very quickly create drug companies, asset-focused drug companies that leverage those platforms and services. And the idea is we just continue to play that forward. So we are almost a customer of our own platforms and services, but at the heart of the alloy model, it's really around collaborating, around making drugs together. So um, we want a large portion of our collaborations to be in uh, to be in collaboration with other big companies and venture-backed. Uh, but again, we're not going to do a ton of deals every year. This isn't about being the biggest. Um, we have sort of natural constraints on our growth for the things that we want to do. Um, so yeah, a little bit um, a, a little bit different, but like many kind of similar things because business is the same no matter where you go, almost. Yeah, and there's a lot more to dive into there. So but I'm a business model geek, so I'll just come out and ask it. So presumably you're much more capital efficient at, I'll call it parent co-level, not needing to raise capital to invest into drug dis development programs because that's done at the sub-co level so you're not diluted. So then the follow-up right. question is, well, then what's the exit for an Atomab shareholder or an Alloy shareholder if it's, for Alloy's case, a forever company? Well, so I'll take Atomab first because uh, Atomab is 15 years into its life cycle, 16 years in, and has proven that the business model works really well. So Atomab has been profitable uh, since 2013. Um, on the back of working really hard, me keeping expenses low and being a really great drug discovery partner, of which today it is still a great drug discovery partner. So we, you know, Adamab's out there all the time, uh, signing new partnerships with companies. Um, you can trust Adamab to do your antibody discovery. There's no question. Um, the exit for Adamab has been a series of nearly every year since 2014. The company has had a conversation with new investors who look at the portfolio of drugs that have already been discovered that have downstream economics, milestones and royalties, and then the power of the platform to do more deals. And uh, and there has been a, a financing event nearly every year that says, hey, anyone who would like to invest in this business today and, and, and sees the growth potential in the pipeline and the portfolio, then come on board. Uh, so it's an, it's an external market check. And then the cash proceeds of that, of that sale are used to buy back shares from existing shareholders or to make investments in the company. And so that's been kind of a, a primary followed by a secondary and Adamab has been doing that pretty consistently since 2014, sort of letting some people off the bus and some people on the bus. And, you know, the bus keeps moving along regardless. Uh, the, so the Alloy business model, slightly different. So Alloy and being more of a forever company, by the time the other, so it was my family office, three other family offices, a great venture capital firm, uh, 8VC came in early uh, with us, uh, Alex Kolasich there, um, who I've known for over a decade. Um, he knew the Adamab business model back in the day. And... So we we intentionally said, hey, look, I'm going to build this company. I'm going to run this company for the rest of my life. The idea is I love working on puzzles. I love working with other really great scientists, entrepreneurs. We've had some successes elsewhere in our life. But the thing that I think the market really needs is who's the company that shows up and is willing to do the work that other people aren't willing to do. 
And not just today, because you can build a great model that discovers drugs today, but you do it two or three or four times, and then you shut off the spigot and you focus on your own pipeline. Like, how do you start the company in 2026 or 2028, the next company as you're looking out, where you want to have complete access to the best people and the best tools and the best technologies? Um, and if there's great companies out there that continue to offer their services, fantastic. But if there's also uh, a gap in the marketplace of what's available, maybe uh, the team at Alloy can help uh, fix that. So we uh, we are focused really around um, trying to keep Alloy as this forever company and reinvesting 100% of our revenue. So the revenue, 100% of revenue gets reinvested back into innovation and access to innovation at Alloy. So what's the exit for your investor? You're like, that sounds like a terrible investment. Okay, so, but I do make, <laughs> you're, you're good at finance and business models. And, and I'm always cautious to say this like directly up front, it just, uh, the revenue reinvestment is a brand promise. So anyone who works with us, who is funding us, who licenses some of our technology, works with us, they know how we're going to spend that money. We're going to build out our technical roadmap across our six modalities. Um, we're going to continue to invest in, in expanding the capacity of the talent of our entrepreneurs and other people and so how they actually utilize those tools. And also making it accessible. So access means something different. It's a bit of a Rorschach test when we talk about with different people. So to big pharma, to a top 10 pharma access might be, oh, you created something and we don't have to buy your whole company to get access to it. We could license the tech. Yes, that's true. Oh, you mean you'll do the drug discovery for me? I don't even have to buy the tech or train my folks how to do it. You mean you'll just do a drug discovery program? Absolutely. That's a great way to define access. The other way to think about access is how does an academic afford access to a cutting edge technology or service? So we're very happy that we have some top 10 pharma companies we collaborate with, while at the same time, we might charge academics nothing to collaborate with us. Um, so one of the new things we're trialing is how do we actually do uh, really entry level, almost like core facility level discovery with some of our academic uh, relationships where we're closer. It's really exciting science, but they just don't need a million dollar discovery project. They need something that is like pretty straightforward. How can we help them get access to some really high quality stuff at a price point that makes sense where we're effectively spending some of top 10 pharma's money to like bring access to them? Um, so yeah, we, and so if you reinvest 100% in your revenue, where's the profit for investors? They have to believe that the venture studio ever creates a company either that they want to invest in or that will go public or be acquired. And so when you when someone acquires a company, that's not revenue. It's positive cash flow. So I'm making an income statement versus a cash flow statement uh, argument here. And our business model is one where investors have to believe in the cash flow statement. I run the income statement. We're going to spend all the money. Yeah. Got it. So if I create a company with 82VS, your venture studio, the founder's equity from Alloy basically goes to Alloy, and that becomes the return for the investors in Alloy. In our very libertarian and open way, we say, look, the cash, if we were to sell our equity, sorry, you're the founder, so you decide whether you sell your company. So you decided to sell your company, and we end up with cash flow from the sale of that equity. At that point, that cash is available for the Alloy board to do a buyback, to pay a dividend, to invest in another company, to invest in our, our venture fund that's attached to the venture studio. Um, as as Ulysses, as our family office, we will we'll push all that forward. So so my I, the, let everyone make their own choice. And so I think there are some investors that find themselves at their life cycle in their investment, where it may make a lot of sense to reinvest that positive cash flow into building more companies, maybe. Um, for Ulysses, for us, for our family, we'll just always keep pushing that forward. It, it's always about playing for the next round of the game. Yeah, so sovereign wealth can do that, or family offices can do that, but investors with 10-year life cycles cannot. So, 
And that's totally fine. And that's great. That's exactly right. I mean, we, we need the 10 year fund life. We need to really take care of our venture capitalists, and our investors to make this whole thing work. I think that's kind of sometimes the tension in our, in our industry is like the founders, I was just talking to a founder this morning, um, in Italy of all places. And I was like, Hey, let's just, we need to remind ourselves as founders that our investors, the venture capitalists only make money when they sell our stock. And like, even as someone who's like been an investor for 20 years, like does venture capital, but also founder, like, I still have to wake up and remind myself of that, that like, we want to build things and keep it around and make medicine and get it to get it into the clinic and get it approved. And it, like, you, you have to be very hopeful and long-term thinking when you're building something, but you have to recognize that your investors, the revenue line item of their model only works when they sell your stock. And like, we want to build and they need to sell. So you got to respect that. And so in our model, we, we deeply respect it. So a sovereign fund that theoretically has a long duration, they still need to see returns or at least the growth and the value and the reinvestment. So our idea is Alloy will always stay small. I mean, it's the, the, the quip. I don't know if you've heard me say it before, Jeff, is that we're not building a $100 billion company. Like at best, if you call Alloy a billion dollar company, but we are helping to support the creation of $101 billion companies. And the idea is like, we just run the little the little banana stand that throws off a dollar of profit and there's always money in the banana stand. And the idea is that everyone else gets to have their journey of what it looks like to have their hopes and their dreams and everything they've ever wanted to do in their life around curing a disease or helping someone that they loved. We're here to help, but it's their company, it's their name. We can help them with capital. We can help them with tools and technology. Um, hopefully, um, at the very least, we can be a phone a friend. Like you're feeling bummed out that your company's not working. Book time <laughs> at eric.com. And like, I'm happy to chat with you. Um, if you get up early, Let's go to eric.com. If you ever want to talk to him, that much I can confirm. The live link, like you, you can do it. Um, the, you're always happy to help with, to talk to folks. And, and that's what we need to remember, or at least what, what I find really rewarding is it's all of those interactions we have over time with like other entrepreneurs. I mean, you're an entrepreneur, you started your company, like you come from the finance background, but you're you're very creative in how you've thought about your own business model of how do you tie together the pieces that allows you to do the various parts of what you do at Locust Walk, be a good partner, creating value for others. Look, it's hard to do that as an entrepreneur and like more, more days are dark than light, right? So uh, sometimes the help that you provide is that there's a stable, you know, link on booking time on, on my, on my zoom calendar, that'll probably still work in 10 years. Like knock on wood, if I, if I'm still around. Um, so yeah, that, you know, we need, we need some forever business models and stability in the, in the, in the world where we can invest compounding across long horizons around our technology and our technical roadmap, instead of seeing these explosions of really great technology to get absorbed into one company. And then there's a diaspora of the team members that flow oh, out yeah, from there, the IP stuck there. And yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's a little inefficient. And that's what's, you know, it's crazy about our, our industry is, it's working for everybody, right? Like if you, if you think of the constituents of like academics and then the second constituent being emerging biotech sort of venture back biotech and then pharma, it's like by every metric it's working. So we see innovation at every level. We see patient outcomes improving at every level. We see a lot of money flowing into to academic research. We see, we see great returns in venture back biotech companies. We see, we see pharma delivering innovation and a willingness of patients to pay for it, you know, with an asterisk, um, we, we can make sure that still happens. But you look at that and you're like, wow, we could be doing an even better job. We can, we can probably accelerate some of this innovation. We could be more efficient with our capital. And what's the reward for efficiency? In the alloy model, if it costs five bucks to run an experiment instead of 10, we run two experiments because we reinvest 100% of our revenue in innovation and access to innovation. So 
it, it, it is all about reinvesting all of that money into an efficient drug discovery mo- model. Yeah, well, I, I commend you for your economics background because it's quite clear that you've <laughs> your career in a positive way. And we need more economists in biotech. I love scientists, but it's good to talk business models. Here's a small world story. So Matt Slaughter and, and David Blanchflower were my two advisors, undergraduate at Dartmouth. And Matt is now, uh, he's the dean at Tuck School of Business. And so when I went to Tuck, he actually wasn't there. He was he was actually working uh, in, down in, in Washington during the time. So the only period where I've been at Dartmouth over the last few years, he was actually not at Tuck at the same time. But uh, I have the pleasure of serving on the board at Tuck and supporting Matt and his vision, which is an incredible vision and in what he's doing at Tuck and, and how that helps Dartmouth. So it's, so it's no Wharton or Penn. You know, we're just the small little brother, little sister. We're not compared. The other Ivies. It's not, it's not the degree. It's what you do with it. That's what I always say. But um, so one of the reasons I wanted, besides your incredibly interesting background and, and story, one of the reasons I wanted you uh, on the podcast is one of the areas of focus for Locust Walk is actually RNA medicine, which is an area of uh, increasing interest, I think, around the industry. And you recently launched a new platform. I think you have six platforms. So if you want to just describe briefly what you can about that, because I know it's an area yeah. of uh, growth for, for Alloy as well. Well, if it, so we have multiple tech platforms. Four, we'd call our core modalities. So that's where we have platforms, services, and venture studios, where like everything's kind of working together. That's antibodies and biospecifics, um, soluble TCRs and TCR mimics, we call that Keyway, genetic medicines, which is where the anti-classics fit, and then cell therapy. Uh, each of those cell therapy you'll actually see launch into next year. We've been working on it internally for a while. Um, that's a complicated integration of a lot of pieces. In genetic medicines, in very much the alloy way, we do. It's like literally on our coffee mugs and right there in our face every day. Alloy reminds us that we do everything in collaboration with others. So as we, so why are we in genetic medicines? The keeper of our technical roadmap uh, is Piotr Bobrovich, and so Piotr is our our, our president uh, and also our head of research. Um, Peter and I have known each other for 20 years. We've worked together. Uh, he was at Glycofy uh, back when my Atomab co-founder was running and building Glycofy to great success. Um, Glycofy was actually the largest all-cash buyout in the history of the biotech industry in 2006, $400 million. How quaint. That <laughs> <laughs> was like the record. But anyway, they just- Mid-market, lower mid-market deal these days. Oh my gosh, it's crazy, right? So it's it's amazing how far the industry has come and how much value uh, everyone is creating. Um, so I met Piotr back then. He was actually one of my thesis advisors uh, external to the program. And then we worked together at Atomab and he was the CSO at Compass and uh, and then came to, uh, to to lead things here at Alloy. So he's the keeper of the, the long-term technical roadmap. And he thinks deeply about not what only is, not only what is relevant today, but what do we think people need? What are the tools or the services they need to make the medicines of tomorrow? And so you just look at what everyone else is doing as they put it into the clinic. It is not our goal to be at the at the bleeding, really cutting edge. Like, so the great stuff that Flagship, Atlas, Third Rock, Arch, MPM, Polaris, like there's some deep science that's really far reaching that requires some serious investments to like build new things. We're, we're kind of below that level. Like we're, we're, we're doing the, okay, yeah, what's out there at the edge and how do we turn it into something that's a little bit more translatable, sort of can do discovery, again, platform services, venture studios all together. So um, in the genetic medicines field, when you look at what are the biologics we have in the clinic, there's a limited number of things that are actually modalities that are, that are biologic modalities. We don't do small molecules because the word's really good at that. We haven't figured out how to be useful uh, in that area yet. 
Um, but in genetic medicines, we've had a focus uh, for many years of, of saying, hey, what, where are the places where we think we can be helpful to complement what's out there? And so our anti-clastic um, ASO technology, really, it's a broader anti-clastic platform and things other than ASOs as well. But it's the, it was actually done in collaboration with Sadir Agarwal. So Sadir, one of the inventors of original Gatmer chemistry, kind of the underlying chemistry behind a number of ASOs. Um, so Sudir, through a, a handful of relationships with us, we got into a conversation and he expressed this frustration with licensing technology to one company and seeing it used a, whole, a few times. We're like, oh, let's tell you about how we see the world at Alloy. That's, that's interesting. We're also, we share that interest in democratizing access to technologies. Um, so if you would like to build this technology you have, he had done a lot of work in designing these, these new formats, this new chemistry and testing these things. Um, we would love to be your partner on that. If it works, we can share the revenue with you. And if it doesn't work, you know, we've spent millions of dollars trying to figure it out with you and you can take and you can take it and figure out what, whatever you want to do with it. But like, you know, we're willing to run this experiment with you. And so for the last few years, uh, Sudir has been coming to the lab throughout the week and really advising and helping to support uh, our areas in genetic medicines and has led to the launch of this anti-clastic format. Um, so these kind of transient circularized structures with RNA um, that we are figuring out how to exploit that uh, in both in vitro and in mice and now in moving towards getting some NHP data. It's super exciting. I'd say it's kind of early days. It might, it might open up a lot of target space. There might be applications of this that go head to head with ASOs, but it might go head to head also with siRNA. Um, there might be particular targets where it's better suited. Again, these are all empirical questions. You can only answer by designing the molecules and optimizing them and sort of figuring out what's the right, what's the right drug. So, but we're really excited about that. Um, and I'm cautious to tell everyone, this is a perfect example of how it works. Like, what do I know about ASOS? Like nothing, basically. Like three years ago, I'm reading review articles. So if ever, if any of this works, everyone should understand that this is not my, the, the thing that I came up with and is my life's work. Like a lot of the things we do at, at Alloy, uh, it's really around supporting other great scientists, entrepreneurs in, this is Sudir's life work. And then it's also uh, the nodes life work on our team. So this is what he's been doing. And so he leads our genetic medicines team. And so you, you, you back the people who are the deep domain experts, but I think equally importantly, share the passion for this working because there's a lot of hard work in designing new technology and making it accessible. And so I'm excited about it. We'll launch a few companies around that um, as, as good examples of it. Um, looking for early partnerships, but also, you know, cautiously optimistic. This works. That we're going to find the right applications for the technology, um, but it could be a big deal. Dude, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely very interesting. I know I've I've seen some of it uh, offline, but ASOs have been around for a long time, and there are approved drugs. So if I yeah, could yeah. characterize what you said, or maybe uh, reframe it, it's you'll go after modalities that are advanced and maybe not cutting edge, but try to have some type of edge compared to everything else that's out there, but not be bleeding edge. So you're not going to do the most rocket science new modality until there's some proof, but you don't want to just be a Me Too antibody developer or ASO developer. You want to have some type of comparative advantage versus others. Is that a fair? Yeah, it's right. We want to be useful, right? So it's almost like Thomas the Train wrote our business plan, right? <laughs> like if you're kids, if you've ever read that, I don't know if you had, right? It's like, they're, they're, you, you want to find a way to be useful. And so if someone else can do the drug discovery, oh my gosh, you should just go contract with them, right? There's, there, there are really great service providers out there and there's really great partners. You should just use them. And we would do the same thing. So um, yeah, that's right. We want to do things where we want to find that place where uh, 
someone on our team or someone else in the world has an idea for something that can be useful and is, is sort of incremental perhaps to what other folks. Sometimes there's breakthroughs and it's truly transformational. Sometimes the integration of all the pieces become transformational. Mm. So as an example, our TCR mimic and soluble TCR platform, so that's led by Dongxing Za. Uh, we call it Keyway TCR uh, Discovery Services. So it has a different it has a different name. It's it's a wholly owned subsidiary of Alloy. It benefits from all of the shared services and the resources that Alloy has, but it gets to be an independent company. So 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 Dongxing runs Keyway. He's the CEO of that, and um, he came over from MD Anderson, where he put one of the first TCR mimics into the clinic with Jeff Moldrum, who is also on our SAB here at at Alloy. And so our belief, so where did that thesis come from? First of all, I'd say Piotr Bobrovich is the is the keeper of our technical roadmap. So let me say many of the things that sound like I have a good idea is really me just parroting what Piotr has developed and I like take copious notes and then I repeat. So let me say this is a lot of the things I say, if it sounds good, it's because Piotr or someone else told me about this many years ago. So, but here's an observation. Antibodies are awesome. Um, you know, B cells make antibodies and T cells um, are, are another component of the immune system that's obviously very important at fighting off disease. And clearly what we've seen in the last 10 years in cell therapy has been incredible and transformative. And one of the frustrations with cell therapy is how do we get the cost down? Um, and you think about folks like Patrick Bowerly, who you know, kind of a hero in the protein engineering space for me, like if there's trading cards for it, I would have Patrick's and try to get him to sign it next time we're together, right? These, uh, you know, he has the he has been pushing for 20 years around. I, I kind of hear him as the Pied Piper of bioengineers around. No, no, no. Like you could do it with a cell, but why not do it with this soluble protein that links peptide MHC with a vector cell? So what Micromet did, what Amgen bought, um, and he's continued on that. Recently, Patrick and the MPM team they they started a company called Crossbow. It is a TCR mimic and soluble TCR company. So really just cutting edge technology and cutting edge company. That's really awesome. Um, and I think setting the pace for the field uh, around this, this area of, of TCR mimics and soluble TCRs. Um, so our vision for this is, look, in 20 years, there can be just as many soluble proteins that bind peptide MHC on one end and effector cell on the other end. So just as a generalized molecule, there's a whole bunch of different formats, but uh, the human body uses that, that intracellular machinery the peptide MHC complex to display intracellular targets. So in a world where you've got antibodies and and uh, to go after surface express and soluble targets, what's the tools in your tool toolbox to go after intracellular targets? And as we started talking about this with people three years ago or so, the feedback from our our top ten, top twenty pharma companies was like, that's interesting. Like maybe, maybe not. Like, are there any targets? And we're like, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of targets. <laughs> a lot of targets. Um, and what people perhaps weren't fully paying attention to is for 25 or 30 years, there's been just incredible publications on this of understanding underlying biology, of characterizing it. Um, you think about what like Adaptive has been doing to, to create some of these data sets and these tools that allow us to observe these things. At Alloy, we have a we have a philosophy that breakthroughs in medicine first come from breakthroughs in enabling technology. You know, so would the field even be aware of this if we weren't like really highly aggressively sequencing TCR repertoires for the last decade? No way. But now what we're seeing is like we understand actually how peptide MHC is presented and you can tell the difference between a non-specific engager and a specific engager. So the trick with making a really great TCR mimic is it needs to be a, a sufficient affinity and it needs to be highly specific against that peptide MHC complex and not to bind a closely related peptide. So that's what Dongxing and his team have built over the last few years as Keyway. 
And so this is the, the world's first and only fully integrated drug discovery platform that's available for anyone to use who wants to do drug discovery with us. So, that's make... the, so that what you just said is the key. So it's something that's unique enough compared to what everyone else is doing, but it's broadly known about enough. But you also integrate as much of the value chain as you can to make it easy for folks. So as a company that wants to work with you, that is great as a, a licensee that I can go to one-stop shop and get a relatively cost-effective license and discovery collaboration. But if I'm a, uh, an entrepreneur and a CEO that wants to start a company with you, I can be more capital efficient going to you as the source of the technology, the discoverer slash developer of the early preclinical uh, you know, technology and, uh, and data set. And that gets me going in a more efficient way. Is that a super? That's exactly right. And, you know, as, as a venture backed biotech company, don't spend two years creating technology and hiring the team and setting up your labs. You can literally just start discovery tomorrow. So, like, if you've got a target idea, if you created the, the technology is not bleeding edge. If it's bleeding edge, you don't have a choice because you have to. But if it's you That's just right. want to build a drug for a specific target that you happen to have an edge on, yeah. you're better off going with you as opposed to doing and, everything on our own and reinventing the wheel. And this is where, you know, when you build one biotech company, you like, I mean, you're so fixated on so many things that like the second time you build a biotech company, you're like, you don't make the same mistakes. Clearly the playbook's never the same, but at least you can, you can learn from all the things that you do. So, you know, where Alloy sits with a with a time horizon so that's one of the variables that we can play with that is that, that, that creates allows us to create value in a different way so the fact that we sit in a place where we can actually think 10 and 20 and 30 years out right there's no like exit to the company there's no there's no selling the core company of trying to maximize the share price in the core business we reinvest 100 percent of our revenue so we're able to think about what are the things that we need to build in a really efficient way and monetize it in a way that just allows us to pay our bills Again, the, one of our we have five top level objectives and key results OKRs at at Alloy, and one of them is profit. And you're like profit? You guys don't give a shit about profit. And you're like, no, no, we make a dollar of profit over the long run because we do care a lot about staying in business, and so it is all about reinvesting 100% of that revenue. So, so it is it's a, it's a thing we talk about with our scientists. Like we got to find a way to generate some revenue so we can pay for our experiments. So we can create things. And we can make them accessible. So you got to fight for revenue. You got to be useful. Um, so yeah, you're. And so if you're always on the cutting edge, um, you look at really fantastic cutting edge companies. I probably shouldn't name any, but it's uh, you know you can spend hundreds of millions of dollars figuring out if something works. And if it does, you're maybe a multi-billion dollar. Not company. yet in the clinic, I might add. And you might not be in the clinic, exactly, right? So there's and there's like a lot of really good science that should be funded that way, right? These are in what other country, at what other period of time, do we actually have access to capital, efficient capital markets, and risk taking, and like the, the way that you can you can pull in sovereign and pension money down into a vehicle at a venture capital vehicle, match with the expertise of the venture capitalist there who can tell the difference between bullshit and like something that might work. But again, it's something that might work where you're like calling up your buddies who have spent 20 or 30 years, like after their PhD, like thinking about one problem for like 20 years. And somehow like all of that capital from like some fireman's pension fund and like that professor and everyone else comes and says, I'm willing to put $5 million into this crazy thing that may or may not work. Yeah, like that is insane. It's when you're thinking about how that how that comes together in a moment, and then there you are, Locus walking. You're like, 
if you call me, I'll tell you whether it's a good idea or not. You're like, that's useful, right? <laughs> like bringing that all together is like, there's a perspective that you see across time in what you do at Locust Walk. Like you talk to so many different people, you work on so many different projects. You can bring that experience to bear in the moment for one company that doesn't have to rebuild your whole business. They, they, like, they get you on demand without building all of all of the company that you've built at Locust Walk. And so it's, it's flexible, it's a variable cost, use it as much as you need it, you're sharing the upside, what's not to like? For the record, I'm not paying Eric for this interview, so just- No, 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 but, but, but for the record, I did come in because we do talk a lot about this stuff. Like it's, um, I, I do appreciate the, the way that you think about kind of shared services and uh, at Alloy we talk about hidden synergies. So yeah, we gotta get paid in cash because we gotta, pay our W-2s in cash, right? So we everybody needs some cash at the end of the day. Um, but I feel like we get paid, I get paid in a lot of other currencies. Like truly the thing that gets me out of bed early in the morning is it's not another dollar, right? It's it's, it's conversations like this. It's, it's, it's helping other folks. It's like, oh my gosh, that's the problem you're working on. Like, I'd love to help you with that problem. I love puzzles. I love problems. So two more questions, one about uh, your model and then one about the overall industry and the impact that it's having on you. So the one thing that was just sticking with me is how do you avoid, I know you have an answer for this, but how do you avoid 82VS competing with your typical arm's length licensing clients? What's what's the way that gets me comfort yeah. as a pharma company that you're not going to just turn around and take what you built for me and relicense it in a different package to a new co? Yeah. So first of all, just separation of the house of like, where do ideas come from? Um, a, a, a few different ways. Um, first of all, it comes from a principle, which is you shouldn't steal stuff from other people. <laughs> like, I don't know how to say it. Like it's an intellectual property is the first property, right? When you are, when you are born into the world, you only have your mind and you have a right to what is yours and in your mind and people shouldn't rip that off. Right. Whether it's your ideas of something that's patentable or it's just like, you know, your ability to name a company like I think that's really important that it has to be yours. Um, so. Any idea that you have, if it comes to alloy discovery services on that side of the house, there's a team that will talk to you and say, hey, how can we help? And we don't take on a lot of projects. I would actually say for many of the conversations we have, there's there's maybe not a fit with where we can be the best partner. We might refer somebody out to someone else. Um, we're always there trying to help, right? So it, it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll take phone calls all the time and give people advice whether they work with us or not. Um, so first of all, there's just a separation of the confidential information. Um, at 82VS, so those ideas all come from an EIR, a venture partner, a venture associate. So these scientist entrepreneurs, they've got to walk their own path. They've got to be figuring it out. They've got to be talking to their academic friends. They've got to be talking to their pharma friends. They've got to be analyzing the world. They're supported by some folks on entrepreneur enablement services team. So working with outside folks who are bioinformaticians or um, sort of the, the way that we can crunch data and look at patents and legal and other things. So that that's an independent team and an independent support function from discovery services. So it has to run independently. Um, and then the key is also to not do a lot of things. So if you try to be everything to everyone and have like a huge volume business, you inevitably run into to, to conflicts and overlaps. Our mission is to be small and focused and just be good at what we do. And and so if that is enough to pay the bills and to start a few companies or a few asset focused companies a year, that's great. Um, it's also ripping people off. Yeah. So if a pharma company comes to us. Well, let's say I'll make it real. So let's say a yeah. pharma company comes and says they want XYZ target. Yeah, Are you yeah. then precluded from working with another company on XYZ target? Or how do you 
How do you separate that out? We we have a principle. So if that's in, uh, let's say, antibody discovery, we have a principle of not being, uh, not giving target exclusivity because we want to democratize access to our tools and technology. So there's a lot of ways to cross that if someone asks for exclusivity. You can have time-bound exclusivity. You can make sure no two teams work on it. Well, there's but, competition to matter exclusivity, of course, which does Of course, absolutely. Like, you know, I mean, that's the, in the range of exclusivity. A lot of times we talk about the appropriate level of exclusivity. Composition of matter has to be owned by one company yes, and has to be defended with a halo and like you got because otherwise we cannot fund the creation of new medicine. Right. So hard and fast rule that has to be protected and it's got to be it's it's got to be protected with something like a 20 year patent life to make the economics work. Um, we are super supportive of that. Um, yeah. So they so they I mean, in that world where a target comes up, I would be disinclined for 82 VS to work on the same thing. We've never pre been presented with that problem. And I will say, even in our in our Atomab experience for many years, um, uh, when I was there as the, as the COO, um, up until that point, um, we didn't see a lot of the same targets, right? So it's actually like, you, everyone thinks they're working on the same thing, but you know, there, there's, there's a lot of innovation that's out there or a subtle, like how you wanna hit something. So it, there actually is differences. Um, but at the end of the day, if there's a perception of conflict, that's sometimes, as bad as an actual conflict. So um, as the CEO of Alloy and as a venture capitalist and the other things, like I have to be very professional with the segmentation of information. Um, but there's very few people that actually would see, like I, I see what we're doing at 82VS as a general partner there. And I see what we're doing at Alloy Discovery Services. But you will also know that I am not the one designing the drug discovery campaigns. Um, and there's the, the I'm, we're very sensitive to the perception of conflict as much as any actual literal conflict. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And I appreciate that. So I guess my last question relative to, frankly, the market that we're in, we're talking about innovation and working on early stage programs. The reality of what's getting financed now, on average, has moved later. Yeah, yeah. Doesn't yeah. mean early innovation is not getting funded, but things that are early that get funded tend to be more cutting edge not more validated. So how do you think about that? How has it impacted your business? And um, what is your, I guess, prognosis for the short to intermediate term future? For our business, Alloy works with others to discover cutting edge medicine, biologic specifically. So you got TA heads, therapeutic area heads and pharma. They're like, I wish we had a drug against fill in the blank. They talk to their discovery team. They might talk to us. We're here to help. And by the way, no one even has to know that we're working on it with you. So when that pick up the discovery when no one picks up the discovery phone because people are focused on their clinical stage companies that are maybe they didn't get them public this year and so as an investor you need to write a check and fund those you're not really focused on starting the next flashy thing when you're really worried about making sure your current things don't die yep. we for those of us that have been around long enough right late 90s early 2000s that capital cycle so the so the boom bust of the internet bubble um, 2002 to 2004 in biotech, the global financial collapse, 08, 09. Although pharma still made money, that's when that's when pharma took the opportunity to go through like a readjustment. The history of small molecules becoming the future of biologics and large molecules. That was the transition state. Like the global financial collapse gave the air cover to say, man, maybe we're going to lay off some people in this site because we've got too many folks doing small molecules. Let's spin them out into a CRO and let's contract for those services. We saw a lot of pharma companies do that, making it a variable cost instead of a fixed cost. What did they do? 
they started picking up the phone and calling Atomab at the time of like, because we presented ourselves as, hey, we're here to help. You don't have to build your own expertise in antibody discovery. You know, if you're not Genentech or J&J Senecor or someone like that, like who's already really good at antibodies, maybe Atomab could help you. Um, we're seeing a similar shift here in kind of the post-COVID world. So people are, uh, the overall dollars put in discovery stage companies, when that is low, we don't do as much business and discovery. Now, that's a perfect time to be spending more of your time and resources and slack capacity making drug programs for venture studios. This is not accidental that we have this integrated model of platform services and venture studios. We have a capacity to be very good at what we do. And that capacity burns cash regardless of whether you're doing drug discovery today or not. So I kind of think about it as like there's fruit rotting on the dock that's been delivered to port. And if you don't move it or use it, like it, it, it rots. And so we have discovery capabilities ready to go today. We can we can immunize an animal. We can start a TCR movement campaign. Vinod can be working on a new anti-clastic ASO today. We use that capacity all the time. And so when external projects decline, we increase Venture Studios. We, we free up some capacity for projects that have been proposed at Venture Studios that we're waiting for a slot. And so that's at the end of the day, it keeps us, we, we, try, to, we try to fight towards that dollar of profit. But if you fast forward to 2026, which is really like kind of, it's a horizon that's far enough out, but like imagine Alloy as a profitable business of which you kind of, we fight towards that. We, we deficit finance the future. So that all the work we're doing in anti-clastics, for instance, we know we don't make revenue off that today. Yeah. We know we burn millions of dollars to try to create the future. Okay, at, at some point, will that pay off? Who knows? Um, maybe, maybe not. Um, but we will invest in it because that's what we do. We invest in innovation. And, and, and our investors agree that that's a good use of their cash. We are stewards of their cash. So in 2026, though, you wake up on January 1st, and the core business of Alloy, platforms and services, is a profitable business, right? Maybe some combination of, of uh, venture studios selling one of their business. Like, so maybe one of our CEOs decides to go public or she, she sells her business. In that world, you have a business that's break-even or better with hopefully fewer than 150 people. We try to stay under that Dunbar number is the idea. Stay small, stay nimble, be useful, focus on a handful of things. And you have an operational capacity that is second to none for what we do. That's all we're trying to build. I just want to wake up in the morning on January 1st and be like, gosh, I met this woman who had this amazing drug idea. At like 8 a.m. I had a phone call. And by noon, we had a collaboration because we said, sure, come on platform, like do whatever you want. Like we, we can actually help you discover Your that. Your schedule's drug. not that open, Eric. I know that. So that's a very unlikely scenario, but I like the concept. Okay. The 4 a.m. call, I would, I would take that call early and then, uh, and then, yeah, but, but no, that, that really happens. There are things that can happen that fast when you're a small, nimble company. Um, and when that's a half a million dollar experiment or a $50,000 experiment. It's easier to say yes to something that's risky, that's $50,000, than it is to say yes to something that's $5 million. Yeah, right. and so I guess what, what I'm hearing is when you fill it with 82 VS capacity because there isn't enough built-in clients yet, that's something that doesn't require massive financing because it's so early and because you're so capital efficient. So you're not as worried about the financing of your NUCOs up front. Obviously, the Series A's need to get done. And that is something that the markets will have an impact on. But if you can get things further along than on short dollars, then theoretically, you can live to fight another day and use some of your deficit spending to use your term to to get things further advanced. And I think that makes us that's why we think we're a good partner 
to like every other member of, of the ecosystem. Like we, we'd like to think that we are <laughs> like, it's like, we'll see like, but to venture capitalists, what's not to like about their dollars getting stretched farther or, or us being able to like come to them with something that's like, Hey, look, we've got a proto company. That's like a drug asset. Does it fit in? Like, do you want to build a company? Like who cares how much of the equity 82 VS owns? Right. It's between the founders and 82 VS. When you start a company like that, when it's somebody else's company, we're just trying to help them. And so you can provide drug pipeline and, and assets that are like, we don't have venture capital in those companies yet. So you have a lot more flexibility in how you monetize them. So as an example, a venture fund has to monetize its investment within a 10 year fund life. Right. Great. Yeah. I'd love to take years 11 through 20. Like it, it's, it's fine. Like you, you like, it's, it's the old story of like, you give, you give someone the, the orange and you're like, which, which piece do you want? And someone wants the peel and someone wants the flesh. Like, perfect. We're like, we're like the peel. You're guys. a peel guy. basically. We're the, we're the peel guys. Like, it's fine. Like, oh, oh no, we actually, we have 10 years plus two one year extensions. Fine. I'll, I'll take years 13 through 20. It just doesn't matter. Like you, our goal in life is to always play for the next game. So anytime we're closing a deal, anytime we're starting a company, anytime we're closing a, a license of one of our technologies, or we're doing a discovery project. The question I always ask is what's the next thing we're going to do together? And what, what we try to do is get people focused on, don't wring all the value out of this thing. Like, let that be somebody else's value. Like, what's the hypothetical next thing we can do together? Oh, you know, I think Jeff's a really good guy. He's got this other idea. This is going to be a two, three drug company. It's a great TCR mimic. Okay, cool, cool. What's Jeff going to do next? It's like, I think after he does this company, like, and when he proves that it works, like, we'll be his service provider to the next, we can be his co-founder of his next company. And that's going to be so much better because his first one he sold for a billion dollars. Great, great, great. So it doesn't matter what we charge today, just like, make sure you make a dollar of profit somehow, hopefully, and uh, let's play for the next game. That's awesome. Maybe we'll just leave it there because we, we can go on probably for hours. <laughs> and I know we have in, in previous conversations, just not on on, uh, on record. But Eric, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Awesome conversation. I actually learned a few new things I didn't already know about Alloy and uh, the industry. So uh, very much appreciate it. When I finally get a podcast, Maybe you can come on mine. You just I need to get I'd around be to doing that. Honored to uh, to come on yours. Oh, so. we have a Freejax podcast. Maybe I can. Maybe I can get Alex and and I to interview you for that. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure how much my business model fits with the uh, Freejax ecosystem, but love to consider it. If that's you know, uh, that's most of our bio, as we discussed at the top of the hour, most of our business comes from people seeing the Alloy logo on the front of the Freejax jersey. So I'm in. I got to get to a game first. There. Yeah, I get to a game. But- <laughs> Oh my god! Go on the podcast. All right, next season. Next season, we are the national champions. You know, right? I, I hear that the national championship. So in Logan Airport, you're going to see a Free Jacks banner. Like we got to awesome. get that done. That's right? awesome. We got to get that done. Anyway, really thanks, cool. thanks, Jeff. Awesome chatting today. Um, thanks for the time, and and, and thank thank you to Locust Walking for everything you guys do uh, out in the ecosystem. Whether we're working directly on a deal, you're kind of like oil in the machine of keeping things moving. So I appreciate that. You're the man. Thanks, Eric. Right. Talk soon. Bye. Take care. Bye. I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Biotalk. We look forward to welcoming you to our next episode where we will continue discussing areas of current interest in Biotalk. Please share with all your friends and colleagues so we can grow the audience. This is Jeff Meyerson for Biotalk, signing off.